0: Uh, hi, guys, I'm Niall. I'm a medical student here at Cambridge. Uh, I've been in Cambridge for the last 23 years. Uh, I'm married to my super wife, Charlie, over there. Um, she's great. Uh, I'm part of Neighborly, the, uh, the community that uh, Katie mentioned earlier. Um, today, we're carrying on our series on the Sermon on the Mount Jesus' blueprint for life. So far, we've seen the upside down kingdom of the Beatitudes the amazing salt and light that each of us get to carry into the world. Further from that, we've heard from Chris about um, how Jesus came to fulfil the law, and then two weeks ago we heard about uh, anger in our hearts, and Sarah preached an absolute storm. If you haven't listened to Sarah's talk on anger, it's brilliant, so do that this week. Um, She was talking about the real impact and forgiveness that she saw when she went into prisons with the Kairos team. So the overriding theme for this series is actually how, for many, organised religion is odd, it's puzzling, and it's unattractive. But the mystery of the person of Jesus is intriguing. The point of this series is to bed us down in the reality of life as a disciple. So let's get beyond the generalisms, the platitudes, and get into the grit of what does it mean to be a disciple in Cambridge in 2018. So throughout the series, and particularly tonight, let's take the mindset of disciples. Um, What is God saying and what am I going to do about it? When you come to a gathering like this, let's talk about how can this be a watershed moment in my life? How can I be different tomorrow than I was yesterday? Let's not pretend that this is all just about maintaining religion, but it's actually about changing us for the better. So when I remember the 18th of November in 2018... What is going to be different about my life after that day? So let's open our Bibles at Matthew 5, 30 uh, It's page 969. If you don't think God has a, se- uh, has a um, sense of humour, then it's about sex today, and it's on page 969. I'll leave that to you. Uh, <laughs> so far, we've had Jesus' birth, all the Christmas stuff. He's been baptised, uh, and he's started preaching and healing the sick. and so. Here we are, he's sitting on a hill and he's talking about how to live and what the kingdom of God is. Uh, So that's page uh, 969, Matthew 5, 27 to 30. But I'm going to pray before I read it. Father God, I pray that tonight you would renew our minds and transform us, Lord. That it wouldn't be about striving. It wouldn't be about things that I say. It would be about things that your Holy Spirit is doing in each one of us. I pray that you would be with us now, ministering to us, and you'd be in our hearts as I speak. Amen. Cool. I'm going to read it. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So, let's talk about sex, baby. Uh, That is the word of salt and pepper. Uh, Pepper spelt P-E-P-A. So today we're talking about sex, specifically sex with someone you're not married to. I've just finished my placement on maternity and obstetrics, so I can tell you a lot about witnessing the pain and suffering about one particular consequence of sex, but it's actually apparently normal uh, that's actually a planned consequence of sex, the pain and suffering through childbirth. That was meant to be a joke, but obviously you're not ready for that. Um, great, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the room, it's fine. Uh, There's a lot of emotional baggage that comes with this topic. Obviously, Jesus extends adultery, not just to mean people having literal sex with one another, but anyone they look lustfully at. Before I get into the meat of what I want to talk about, there are a couple of caveats that I want to address. This topic, above all others, we in the church specialise in bringing shame to one another. It is so easy to preach on this and say this is what you're meant to do, this is what you're not meant to do and if you get it wrong you're evil. And actually countless generations of young people have grown into their Christian faith thinking the only issue in their Christian life is sex before marriage and pornography. People have counted themselves out, being entirely consumed by the secret sin that they feel only they suffer from. They're in church thinking, if anyone else knew, then I'm done. I've got to keep a brave face. I've got to put on my my holy mask. And I've got to act pure. You know, don't let them in. Don't let them see. Be the good girl you always have to be. Um, Good. You're with me now. It's fine. You're with me. Uh, We bring this British prudism to how we speak about sex in the church that only serves to heap secret shame on each one of us which is exactly what the enemy wants. The accuser wants you to feel like you're the only one who suffers from this, that you're damned and that your identity is a porn addict and an abhorrent pervert. That's what he wants. That's what he wants to be stamped on your life. But here's the deal. that If you look around, every single person around you has sinned. We're all sin addicts, whether we're sexually sin addicts or not. It says in Romans that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. That without Jesus, we are all done. Jesus has come to rid us of shame, not pile it on. Our identity is in Christ, not in whether we look at porn or not. Our identity is in Christ, not in whether we find it difficult to sexualize people that we find attractive. I'm not saying that this issue is trivial or harmless, but what I am saying is that when God fashioned you in your mother's womb, he didn't brand you with the word porn addict. So I'm gonna read a bit from Ephesians before we move on as a bit of uh, cover-all. It says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages we might show the incomparable riches of his grace, appearing in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And it is not from yourselves, it's a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Okay, turn to the person next to you and ask them, what do you think sin is? Cool. So let's come back together. So that's got you thinking a little bit. Um, I think sin, fundamentally, is the difference between belief and unbelief. When we sin, we take matters into our own hands. If we steal, we don't believe that God will provide things for us, so we have to take it for ourselves. If we're angry, we don't believe that God is sufficiently just as a God, so we have to take justice into our own hands. Sin is about trusting in ourselves over God. So when we're in the practice of habitual sin, a question we have to ask is, what is it about God that I'm not believing right now? Which of God's promises are we not believing when we lust over someone? Just like we saw with anger, Jesus points that adultery is something that occurs in the heart, inside of us, before it ever reaches the moment of physical transgression. He says, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully and has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And obviously this point extends to women looking at men as well. Jesus is showing us that actually adultery and sin is much more about our intentions and our desires than it is about the physical act. We can all imagine that what hurts the most when someone has an affair is not the idea of the physical touching and intercourse, although I imagine that's pretty miserable as well, but actually it's so much more the idea of a calculated, rationalised planning and desire to reach that point of physical touch. D.L. Moody, the guy who prayed for 100 people throughout his life every day and they all became Christians, that's what perhaps you might have heard him for, he said that character is what you are in the dark. Character is what you are in the dark. The state of the heart is what you are when no one is looking, when you're inside your room in the dark. Much like we found two weeks ago when we were talking about anger, I can't imagine that many of us feel like we come out well from that level of inspection. Okay, turn to your neighbour. This is a little bit more challenging. Why did God create sex? Talk to the person next to you who you may never have met before. But let's just go. We're all family. We're all friends. Why did God create sex? Okay, I'll, I'll stop the agony. We can. We can. Um... Okay, in the creation story, in the creation story, we see that sex and the value of sex is inseparable from the idea of marriage. A man is united to his wife and they will become one flesh, a.k.a. Adam and Eve, having sex as well, being married. Paul even says that in 1 Corinthians 7, the husband should fulfil his marital duty to his wife and that his wife should do that to her husband as well. You know, notice how it's phrased, fulfilling a duty to the spouse. It's about service, it's about love, it's about giving, it's about sacrifice. But compare this to the idea of looking at someone lustfully. Uh, I found this quote in a commentary on the esteemed website BibleGateway.com. Uh, and I couldn't really think of a better way of putting it, so I'm just going to read it out. So, love is antithetical, that's just the opposite to true love. It dehumanizes another person into an object of passion leading us to act as if the other person were a visual or emotional prostitute for our use. Fueled by selfish passion, adultery violates the sanctity of another person's being and relationships. Love, by contrast, seeks what is best for a person, including strengthening their marriage. Adultery usually involves considerable rationalization, justifying one's behavior as necessary or loving. But lust is the mother of adultery, the demonic force that allows human beings to justify exploiting one another sexually, at the same time betraying the most intimate of commitments, where trust ought to abide secure, even if it can flourish nowhere else. Lust demands possession, love values, respects and seeks to serve other persons with what is genuinely good for them. Love is always incompatible with acknowledging God as the supreme desire for our hearts because it is contrary to his will. So I've said a lot of things and we've gone all over the place, but what am I actually getting at? When we lust over someone, we covet that sexual pleasure that is not owed to us. We want to seek pleasure, satisfaction, acceptance, acknowledgement from that other person, whether it's through porn, Or fantasizing about people we meet it's about power and it's about getting something we want which we feel we don't have even our thoughts can give us that kick that dopamine spike that pleasure in essence we're trying to gain acceptance and satisfaction from something that isn't God we're not trusting that God has already accepted us as completely sufficient it's just about but it's not just about betraying our future spouses because some of us won't have future spouses we need some sort of sexualized reinforcement to tell us that we're all right day to day you know think about that song the king of my heart that he should be the king of our heart that he's our song with he's the mountain that we run in but actually we're replacing that with someone else in someone's body How does that fit with sexual acts before marriage? Because I'm not trying to moralise it. I'm not trying to say that even if I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't do this. Even if I wasn't a Christian, I wouldn't have sex before marriage, because I know that isn't true. That actually, it shouldn't work without God being in the equation. Fundamentally, this line of thinking doesn't work, and it shouldn't work without God. And it's not easy loving someone or wanting someone to feel good, someone you're dating but having to hold yourself back when you're just dating and when you're engaged. You know, that that can feel like an altruistic thing to do. You'd say, I want this person to feel nice. Isn't that okay? You know, we're basically married, we're engaged. I just want them to feel good. But do we trust that God's plan for sex is better than the world's? It boils down to saying, God's saying, this is my plan. This is my plan for you and how it fits into marriage, how sex fits into marriage and melding two people together. And do we trust him that that is a good enough reason to not try before we buy? I know there are lots of reasons that you could give about why monogamy and by waiting until you're married is objectively the best thing, but those won't work when you see your peers, your non-Christian peers, perfectly happy sleeping with one another, living with each other for years before marriage, going on holiday and sleeping in the same bed. It won't work. It won't work saying, ah, the breakdown of the nuclear family in our society really is going to come and bite you. Because it won't. For some people, they will live perfectly happy lives. It doesn't work without God's input into their lives. It doesn't make sense. It shouldn't make sense. It's about saying, not my will, but yours, my Lord. And I know that might seem like a cop out, and it's difficult for me. It's as difficult for me as it is for you guys. But trusting in his plan, not our own, is always the first step in discipleship, whether it's sex or something else. Okay, so how, what do we make of the cutting off hands bit? So during the response section, we're going to put some towels out. Matt's going to be over there with some spoons. James is going to be over there with some saws. And then anyone who wants to just get it over and done with then that's what's going to happen. Uh, okay, jokes aside, I mean, there was this one guy, in all the commentaries I read, they talked about origin of Alexandria, who, who um, castrated himself, because he was like, you're not a real Christian unless you do that. And, but luckily, there was a, like, a conference in 300 AD or something where they said that's not the incorrect interpretation. So you can thank them for that. Um, so uh, apparently... This is an example of Jesus using hyperbole or exaggeration to make sure we realise how severe and real this point is. That actually, he wants us to realise it's a big deal. Because eyes and hands are pretty useful and important and God-given things. But actually, Jesus is saying that even getting rid of these things he's given us would be worth it to prevent going into adultery or having lustful thoughts. You know, smartphones are pretty useful and important and God-given things. Yet Jesus is saying that even getting rid of these things would be worth it to prevent you being drawn into sin. So what does it mean for them? For what does it mean then? What do we actually do? If this is hyperbole, what does it mean for us? Well, I'm not going to give you a list of things to cut off or gouge out of your lives. Because actually... You'll just be attempting to live by rules that you've heard someone say at church and actually you'll put that on yourself and we'll just be back to the shame thing. And it won't work and it'll, you'll feel really good for a week and then when you fail, then you'll be as miserable as you were before. But I actually, I actually learned a new word when pre- presenting, uh, preparing for this talk. It's called casuistry or casuistry, I don't know. But anyway, <laughs> it's, about, uh, it's about when you're trying to Show yourself to be abiding by a principle, but finding all the loopholes so that you don't actually follow it. But what I believe Jesus is getting at is us attempting to align our hearts with his, not just about by all show, by not breaking the rules. We can say, well, I didn't do that, so it's all right. You know, it's, it's the same as when Sarah said, we justify ourselves by saying, well, I didn't do this, so actually what I did was alright you know what triggers your mind the key message here is that that if you've realised something is triggering you then gouge it out of your life if every time you scroll through Instagram you trigger a cycle of lustful thoughts by what you see there then delete Instagram that won't be true for all of us but I imagine it's true for quite a few of us Don't hope that it just won't happen again. Don't hope that next time you'll be alright and your willpower will get you through. If late at night you find yourself alone in your bedroom with your smartphone and it doesn't end well, then put your smartphone somewhere else. Buy an alarm clock. Cut it out of your life. Do things that are drastic and potentially inconvenient to stop yourself being led down that road. You know, just a quick aside, that doesn't mean that if you find it difficult not to do things with a person that you're not married to yet, it doesn't mean that you should break up and never look at the opposite sex ever again. It just means that you should have a conversation about it. You know, love the person that you are dating by saying, well, what, what makes it difficult for you? And how can we not do that? But the biggest, most crucial and important piece of advice that I can give you, is to tell someone what's going on. 100% that is the most effective thing that will, will help all of us. Having someone alongside you who can, you can talk straight up to, like real facts, real talk. Get someone from your Barnabas community and text them and say, can we talk about what Niall said about on Sunday? So it means you don't have the word pornography or the word sex in your text or whatever. You know, just say, can we talk about it? And they will say, yeah, let's meet up at the pub on Tuesday. Maybe not in the pub, maybe somewhere less public, I don't know. Um, you know, talk about when you're tempted, how frequently it happens. And be unnecessarily upfront about it just to push through that shame and uncomfortable barrier. Just be real with one another, because we're all family here. You know, if you're that person someone reaches out to... Don't judge them and don't be like, oh, I can't believe you're on the worship team. Or don't say anything like that. Just be like, Jesus loves you. I love you. You're part of our family and we want to help you. And don't trust yourself to be forthcoming about it when you fail, because you may well fail. Hopefully tonight will be a a time where it's a watershed moment for you, where actually you might turn a corner, where Jesus might break those chains for you. But actually, it might not be the last time that it happens. So build into something where it means that when you fail, it doesn't have to be you saying, oh yeah, I did it. Get someone to nag you, and not three months down the line. Because if it's three months down the line, you'll say, oh yeah, I started again three days after we talked the first time, but I just didn't have the heart to tell you. Okay, so just to round off, I want to restress where we started. Like While this is a big issue, and an issue that can get on top of people. Don't make it a self-imposed dividing wedge between you and Jesus. Jesus chose us and died for us whilst we were still sinners. Whilst we were still doing all the tough rubbish stuff. That's when he died. That's when he chose us. And not even with the future of us changing around with the hope of that. Because actually... Like Ephesians said, his death and resurrection is what turns the corner for us. Actually, whilst I've talked about practical things that we can do, actually the thing that it boils down to is the Holy Spirit changing us from the inside out. And I didn't want to talk about it without talking about practical, practicalities, but in reality, it's a heart thing, and Jesus is the one who changes our hearts. So don't come out of this thinking, oh, I've got to have a list of six things that I'm not going to do anymore or whatever because Niall told me. Actually, it's about Jesus coming in and changing our lives as a family, as communities. So what we're going to do now is apply what we learned last week about prayer ministry. So last week, if you weren't here, James took us through actually what it's like to ask the Holy Spirit to come and minister to us and change us. Because we're a family who loves and prays for one another Because the Holy Spirit is the only one who can instill that deep satisfaction that we're yearning for when we lust over someone else. I think it's probably wise if we try and stick to groups of guys and groups of girls just because that's the subject matter. But this is how we get stuff done through prayer, praise and thanksgiving. The enemy loves it when we strive because either we fail or we take pride in ourselves when we strive and succeed. But actually, Jesus is a God who changes hearts. So, so let's all.